just recently, I was uh, in the kitchen, and there were Cheerios all over the floor because I'm a pretty messy eater. And uh, actually, it was my daughter. It's her fault, but we can't blame her. She's only one. And she loves Cheerios, but she loves more so putting the Cheerios on the floor. And even when you say don't do it, she kind of gives you that look, and then she just drops them everywhere. Well, I noticed the Cheerios on the floor, and I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different today. I'm going to clean up the Cheerios, instead of just expecting the wife to clean it up. You know, I'm going to be a good husband. And so I went into uh, the closet, and right now we're kind of in transition. We're staying in a family home and, and, um, before we purchase our new home. And so we have some things in this home that we didn't have in our last one. Uh, and so when I walk into the closet, I'm expecting to find a broom, And then a dustpan, because I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to sweep it up, but I really just, I don't like, I mean, I just do not like bending down with the dustpan. I know, lazy, I get it, right? But when I opened the cover to my biggest surprise and a great grin on my face, there was this dustpan with a handle. And I thought, yes, now we're talking. Now I do not mind cleaning up the Cheerios. And man, I just went to sweeping, you know what I mean? It's all over getting the Cheerios up. And I thought, man, what else in the house needs to be cleaned up? This isn't so bad. Why did I like this right here? Because it's awfully convenient. It just saves me from getting lower. You know, I began to think about that. Really, I did. You know, sometimes you say, did he really think about that in the moment using this illustration? I really did. As I was thinking, I was like, what is it about this dustpan that I like so much? And I said, I get it. it. I don't have to bend down low and sweep into the pan. And I began to think and I began to pray, Lord, what are the things in my life that I really enjoy just for the sake of my own comfort? I enjoy them because I don't have to get low. I don't have to put forth a lot of effort. I don't have to really serve. I can still put me first. And I began to think of several things in my life. And I'm sure you can think of areas in your life too that you're just grateful that you don't have to get low, that you don't have to kneel down in posture, that you don't have to humble yourself, that you don't have to go and be a servant to someone else, that you can still have your comforts and your riches and your blessings and that's how you want to live life. But we, we notice something in that type of living. And I don't know quite where to put this. I'm just going to put it right over here. But we notice something in this type of living that we have this longing that when we put ourselves first, we're never satisfied. And I think we're going to understand why that is when we look into this passage today and you say, Brian, this is just a bunch of names. I mean, where are you going to go with this? I, I can't wait to see where you go with this. In, in fact, there's a lot that we can do with this genealogy today. And there's actually more that we can do than the time we have afforded to us. But what I want you to see is that we have a savior who is willing to come down. He came all the way down and he lived among us. And this is, not, this is not something that we deserved. And this is not something that we ever had planned. In fact, we 
would prefer to be the savior and to fix things, but we needed a savior to come down, to come down low and to live among us. And that's what we see in this genealogy of Jesus Christ today. The book of Matthew reveals King Jesus and how he comes all the way down to us because we could never go up to him. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's the good news today, that if you don't feel like getting low, just know that you can put your faith and trust in the one who did get low, the one who did kneel down, the one who came all the way down to us. You can put your trust in him and he will change your life. So we can be honest today. If we're a people who don't like to get low, we trust in a savior who does. And so in the genealogy of Matthew, it reveals two things that we'll see today. One, God's sovereign purpose for his glory. And number two, God's sovereign grace in salvation. And so the genealogy begins with Abraham and rises to David. And from David, it falls into the Babylonian captivity leaving a people longing for the expected Messiah. O come, O come, Emmanuel. This was their cry. This was their hope. This was their expectation in the midst of captivity. And as one author put it, Jesus is the end of the line as far as the Old Testament story goes. It has run its completed course and preparation for him. And now its goal or climax has been reached. So if you read through the Old Testament, all the way through it, and I mean, you work your way through Numbers, you work your way through Leviticus, you get through the prophets, and you get to Matthew 1, and all of these names, and then here is Jesus. It is building to the greatest moment on earth. Jesus coming to live among us. Be sure of this, that Jesus did not come to live outside of culture and family. He was born into a family and he lived within a culture. And kneeling all the way down as he came to live among us, point number one, we see that God's sovereign purpose was for his glory. His sovereign purpose for his glory. Verse one, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not being funny when I say this. I just want to be clear. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Okay. It references the anointed. He is the Messiah, the one who has been prophesied of in the Old Testament. Jesus, the Christ, has Come, He is royalty. He is God's son, king of kings, Lord of lords, entering himself and coming to live among us. And what you do not see in the genealogy is a who's who among God's creation. These are not the best of the best of the best people going, wow, what was, what was different about 
these creatures than, than us? Would, would my name have been in this genealogy if I lived during their time? It very well could have if God's servant, sovereign purpose allowed for it. So I want to be clear that this is not a Hall of Fame list that we see here, much in the same way that Hebrews 11 is not a Hall of Fame. Uh, heroes of faith. There's only one hero of the faith, and that's Jesus. But it begins with the son of David. Why the son of David first? Because it had been prophesied that he would have a son to come who would be king. And so it begins with David, and we see this parallel in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from the one that was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, David was just a shepherd boy. God went to him when he was in the field and said, come, I'm going to make you a king. He slew Goliath with a stone, but it's not David who is the hero, but he went in the strength of the Lord. He was a foreshadowing of the king to come. He has many prophetic psalms that if you were to read through them, it is the clear picture of Jesus Christ, that once you see Jesus in the Gospels and then you read these psalms, you go, it's Jesus. Like, it's like he saw him before he came. How did that happen? The Spirit was at work, working within him as he wrote, prophesying of the King to come. David was not the one to build the temple because of his bloodshed, because he was a, a warrior. May it be clear that he couldn't build the temple because it was never in his own strength, in his own conquering. No, we needed someone greater than David who could, who could conquer the enemy fully, and that being Satan. And so it's all for God's glory. And it was not Solomon who was his son. Just to be clear, maybe David thought it was going to be Solomon, but it wasn't him. Because God is building for him a house, and this house is not made of brick and mortar, but it's made of redeemed people. And Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of that house. This is the picture that we see with him referencing the son of David. But then he says, the son of Abraham, the first covenant which was made that we see in Genesis in Genesis 22, 17 and 18, he says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So maybe Abraham thought that his offspring, it would be his immediate son, Isaac. Maybe that's what he had pictured, but it would not be him. But it was the son 42 generations and 2,000 years later. That's 
the offspring. Jesus is the offspring. And you say, well, where, where are you coming with that? Is that just your interpretation? No, the good news is that God's word reveals it through Paul in Galatians 3.16. Hey, you want to go back in the study of Galatians? Let's do it, all right? It's a good year, right? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So when he was speaking to Abraham, and he says, your offspring, he was speaking of the Christ. Jesus is all throughout the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end. And here he is right in the middle, coming to live among us. Now, it may have seemed like a delay as the people were suffering in captivity. It may have seemed that Jesus would never come, that God would not fulfill his promise. And, and maybe you feel a little bit of that today. Maybe you feel that God is holding something back that you deserve or that you've prayed for, and you're going, God, will you ever just answer this? Will you just come through for me? You know, I want to mention this, and I just want to mention it because, man, it's so blessed my soul. We're singing, On Christ the Solid Rock, I Stand Today. What a powerful song, but you know what was powerful, but what was present in the midst of that? You had a young man leading us in song that three years ago, man, he wouldn't be standing up here singing. He was in the balcony. And I share this, and, and I'm, I'm taking liberty right now, okay? All right, but he, he shared it with us men a couple months ago of just how God has worked in his life and through the physical struggles that he had. And now, look, he's standing and singing before us all. That is a picture of God's grace. That is a picture of strength. But, you know, in the midst of that, there is this suffering and longing and wanting to move past our present challenges. And so that was a testimony before us today. And we have this one and we have many more to see. But I love what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken our God's promise. I know many of you in the room can relate to this today. That it is God's promise that you are holding to. Your patience is being strengthened and God has not become weaker to you. And so we have this question, is God stalling? Is God coming up with another plan? Is, is it taking God this long to figure out a solution to our struggles here on this earth? Is that what's happening? And the answer is no. His timing is perfect. He had this moment picked out from before creation. So Jesus comes right on time. I'm also reminded of the life of Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if you're familiar with this lady, but she lived into her 90s. And she was born in the Netherlands, and she lived during the time of World War II. And when the Nazi army began to infiltrate where she lived, uh, it was her father who owned a watch and clock business. And as they're there in this downstairs uh, watch business of his, 
the store which brought in customers every day, the way in serving changed for them. It then became those who are Jews, you come here and we will protect you. But it was a good cover-up because they could just come as if they were customers buying a watch. And they built an extra little hiding place upstairs in Corey's room. And they had one minute from when they would hit an alarm for the Jews in which they were harboring would run upstairs and hide in this secret place. And there was only room for about six people. And they would hide there as the secret army would come in, the secret police and the Nazi army would come into this building. And they were very successful until a friend, so they thought, ratted them out and went to the secret police and told them that they were hiding Jews. And they took Corey and they took her father and they took her sister and they took 30 other people who were friends of theirs. And they took them off to prison and then later to concentration camps. And Corey and her sister were taken to one of the most well-known concentration camps near Berlin. And they arrived in September. Her sister died a few months later. It was harsh treatment. It was said that up to 50,000 women were put in this place. Their clothes thrown to the middle of a room, not a stitch of clothing on them, before these male soldiers who abused them, who tortured them. Many of these ladies died. It wasn't many days later after Corey lost her sister that she was released. And still to this day, they don't know why she was released. They think it was a mix-up in the records. But she was released. Now, why did Corey and her family go through all of this trouble? Because they were Christ followers. And they did not believe that what was happening was right. And they felt it was their position to bring people in to save them. And they were a part of saving 800 people. It is thought. Years later, Corey went around speaking to different churches. And she went near Berlin. And as she was speaking, she was talking about the forgiveness of God. Because you can only imagine those Germans who didn't know what was happening right underneath them were devastated when they found out what was done to a whole race of people. And so they struggled with this idea of forgiveness. And so she stood before them and she explained it because being near Holland, there's the sea. And so she said, one of the best illustrations I could give is of the sea and of God casting our sins into the bottom of the ocean and never having to deal with them again. And she firmly believed this and she had forgiveness towards the people who were out in front of her. Or so she thought until at the end of her message, her testimony, a man walks up and he has a brown coat and a brown hat on. And immediately she recognizes him. And the next glimpse she sees is a man in a blue coat and a blue hat with skulls on it. And it's the man who is one of the harshest soldiers in the camp. And he reaches out his hand and he says, Mrs. Tim Boom, I want to thank you for your message. 
I was a soldier in, in the Nazi regime, and I know that God has forgiven me for what I've done. And she, instead of shaking his hand, fumbles through her purse. And she's thinking, how can I forgive this man who has seen me without a stitch of clothing on, who treated us so harshly and did such wicked things? How could I forgive him? And in that moment, she realized it's not the emotion of forgiveness, but it's the command to forgive. And her focus was on Jesus forgiving her of all of her sin. And if she's saying, if Jesus has forgiven me of all of my sin, then I can reach my hand out there. And again, he says, I know that God has forgiven me of my sin, but I just need to hear the forgiveness from your lips because you were at the same camp in which I oversaw. And she says, she reached out her hand with a cold heart. And as soon as she grabbed hold of his hand, it started from her shoulder, worked down her arm. There was this warmth. And then tears began to stream down her face. And she says, I forgive you, my brother. I forgive you. That's a powerful testimony. That is a real life testimony. And we're in here today saying, you know what? I've got things going on in my life and I don't understand. Don't you imagine that Corey Tim Boone, in the midst of being captured and taken to a concentration camp, here she was taking care of a people. And God allowed this to her? How could God allow this? But she continued to persevere. She read scripture while they were in the camp. She is a wonderful testimony of someone who would wait and persevere during hard times in the same position that the Jewish people were in when Christ came. They were waiting, and God was not stalling. He was sending his son at the perfect time. Before I get to that, I want to read a couple of quotes from Corey Tim Boone that I think would just, we'd be most blessed to hear this morning. One, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. This is good. God was not panicking in heaven saying, oh no, what do I do? Jesus, go save them. It was all according to his plan. No panic on the Father's part. He's a known God. He knows all things. Although we don't know it, he knows it, and we can rest in this. Along with these people in this genealogy, we too can rest in the unknown, the uncertainties in our lives. So the timing of this genealogy happens under Roman rule. These people are not a free people. Jesus is coming to bring freedom. And his timing is most improbable because he would come in a dry, weary time frame. Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was a young plant a root out of dry ground in a point that seemed hopeless. Here comes hope. And so number one, God's sovereign purpose was for his glory. 
Sovereign purpose for his glory. That's what this genealogy reveals. It's perfect timing. But number two, this genealogy reveals God's sovereign grace in salvation. So it's Jesus who comes to bring us hope, freedom, salvation. And now let's talk about these people and this genealogy. Matthew's book is on the good news of the work of Christ Jesus, that he is king. The audience are the Jews. So as he's writing, he's writing to Jewish people to say, this is the Messiah. This is the king that you have been waiting for. But also to let them know that they are not the center of history. Jesus is the center of history. And that's important for all of us today. Because I, I guarantee you that sometime in this past week or in the last couple of weeks, you have felt like you are the center of history. Everything that's happening in your life, everything that's being done to you, the things that you can't seem to gain or conquer or overcome, it affects all of history. You matter most. We all struggle with this. This is what sin brings into our lives, a history revolving around us. But let it be clear that history does not revolve around these people. History is centered on Christ. And so we see the first cluster of generations of 14. And it's Abraham from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We see the covenant being made and established. And then here his child Isaac, which is a miracle child. There's a parallel there of a miracle child being born. And then Tamar, who comes in this line, who was involved in incest with her father-in-law, and then she has these boys, Perez and Zerah. And then from there comes Rahab, who was a prostitute. And so actually, these two women were involved in prostitution. Tamar um, posed as a prostitute before Judah to lure him in. We have his sin. We have her sin. But yet God uses this. For his own glory, he uses the yuckiness of sin. And then we have Rahab, who was a prostitute and hid in spies. And yet God used this and saved her family and brought her into his family. And then later it goes to Ruth. And it's nothing negative is said of Ruth, but she's a Moabite. And the Moabites were known for their sexual immorality who were at one time forbidden to come into the assembly of God's people. And so this isn't a pretty picture. This is not a pretty genealogy here. In fact, this would bring shock. This would bring horror. I mean, you would not put these ladies' names on your family tree T-shirt for your reunion. You would not. You could think of some better names to put on there besides these names. Oh, we just didn't have room on the tree. Sorry, ladies. But no, Matthew, he, he puts them on the tree. And then as you move forward, you get to David. And yeah, David was a king. He was a shepherd. There are many things we could highlight in David's life, but he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. And it says, the wife of Uriah. Did y'all catch that when we were reading the genealogy? Did you go, oh, he didn't even say the name Bathsheba. He just said the wife of Uriah. What do we see? There might be two things that 
He's pointing to that dark past of David. Remember Uriah? Remember him, that faithful soldier who was more faithful than you were? And you sent him to the front lines to be killed. Yeah, let us not forget that dark history. And yet his wife, who by marriage becomes a Hittite. So you married a Hittite. And from there they have Solomon, David's son. And Solomon had 700 wives and concubines. I mean, we're not even going to talk about that right now. That's, that's crazy. You want to talk about lust and greed for the, the man who is the wisest man who ever lived. And yet he didn't know better than to have 700 wives and concubines. There's the continuation of kings, some honorable to the Lord, and most were evil when you look at this list. Their sin and idolatry led them to the Babylonian exile. And then we see the third generation, cluster of generations, and it's, and it's the Babylonian exile, a people who are waiting for restoration. So what do we learn from these people? One, why the number 14? Because there were more people to this genealogy than this that we see before us. But I think Matthew was being very strategic, quite possibly. He was referring to the number 14 because if you added up the Hebrew consonants in, in David's name, D-V-D, it equaled 14. So it could have been that this is pointing to King David and then the greater king to come, that being Jesus. Now, that's just one thought. But it's a good one. And so maybe that's the point he's driving here with the 14, 14, and 14. But I want to go back for a moment and look at the five women which are mentioned because it was not common for women to be in a genealogy. But they are here. These five women which are mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, all had a scandalous life or some type of scandal about them. Even when you look at Ruth, I don't, I don't know what that whole thing was about when she goes in and she uncovers um, the feet of her husband-to-be. Don't, don't know what that was all about. A little weird. But yet there's a sketchy past to all of these. And, and you look at Mary and she, she didn't have a sketchy past, but as a teenage girl, she is now in the position of being pregnant and not married. So why these five ladies? Well, one thing we see is that Jesus would connect to the Gentiles because these ladies connected to the Gentiles. King David's great, great, great grandmother, Tamar, was a Canaanite. King David's great, great grandmother, Rahab, was a native of Jericho. King David's great grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. And he himself had a Hittite wife. And so he relates to the Gentiles. How do we take that, that Jesus came for all races he came for all people groups. That's how we take it. And that is good news. He came for the world. For God so loved the world. What is he speaking of when he speaks of the world in John three sixteen, He's speaking of Jews and Gentiles. He's speaking of all races of people. I love this, especially in the day and time in which we live because we're reminded that this is not only a problem today, it has always been a problem of races, depending on the country and the place that you live in, taking value on the color of one's skin. 
Sadly, this remains a problem for us in our country. The healing does not come by putting one race on top of another or races on top of another. The healing comes when you look to Jesus Christ. And so one in this genealogy, we see that Jesus is not just coming for the Jews and that the chosen people of God are not just Jews. The chosen people of God include Gentiles as well. That is good news for most of us in this room today. But he could have picked some different women, couldn't he have? I mean, here's one author. He says, the four model matriarchs of Jewish history were Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. The wives, respectively, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These four women are conspicuous by their absence here. Their husbands are all here. And so there was opportunity for Matthew to include the good wives. But Matthew gives the church four new matriarchs, and all of them preach the gospel of the deep and wide mercy of God. I love that. From these women, what do we see? The mercy and grace of God. You may have walked in here, and as we're reading this genealogy, you may have said to yourself, I would never be in that genealogy. I'm just not good enough. And neither are these. just a few notes that we see on the people in this genealogy. One, the men and women means that there's equality in God's kingdom. Equality among men and women, that it's not just men who can be saved, but women can be saved as well. And we ought to display this in our homes and in the workplace, in our community, in the local church to understand that we are equal in the eyes of God, equal in value. We have roles in which we serve. But before God, those roles do not make you greater or lesser than the other. We share in this gospel together. And so if there's something in your heart today, men, where you feel like you're more dominant over the woman and you believe that God's word supports that, I believe here we see it refuted. Women, if you feel that men are no good, that they're a waste of time, that they're a joke, in fact, they're the butt of all jokes as we see in most sitcoms today, that's been refuted right here. Together in Christ Jesus, we have our value. It's important for us to hear today. Please don't let that go in one ear and out the other. May it affect the way you live. May it affect the way you treat the opposite sex. Women are not men's property. Men are not women's property. We are in Christ Jesus together. But not only that, but as we say, neither Jew nor Gentile, so we see equality among men and women to be saved, but then all races. And we should go throughout all of the world preaching the gospel. We'll have some opportunities coming up this next year where you can preach the gospel in this country. You can go and help spread the good news. Also, places like Nicaragua, Guatemala, supporting missionaries in the Ukraine, um, and Beirut many places around the world, this should burn heavy on our hearts for all people. When you read the news and and you read that this past week there were over 200 people that were killed in a mosque, did your heart break for those people? Or did you go, uh, 
They didn't worship Jesus. They're in some other country anyway. And you just move on to the next thing. And I get that there are 7 billion people in this world. But yet when we read this genealogy and we see that Christ came not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile, our heart ought to break for the world. It ought to send us out into the world. This ought to be our motivation. Our motivation for going overseas is not so that we can go take some pictures, come back, put them on Facebook for everybody to see that we were good missionaries in a different place. Our motivation is to go back and go back and back again so that we can see life change in those lands as well. And so with this genealogy, we see that it comes from all races. But then here's the one I want to hone in on the last, that it's grace, not works. It is all God when it comes to salvation. First Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Matthew 1.21, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Today, can you stand before God and boldly proclaim that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ? Have you come into this building rejoicing that your sins have been forgiven by Christ the King? That that's why he came? Or are you living in misery? Are you living in guilt? Are you living in unforgiveness, not even able to forgive yourself because of the sins in which you've committed? Are there certain sins right now that you're not willing to let go of because you think that you need them in order to be happy in life? I beg you today, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Christ Jesus and be saved. What do you need in order to be saved by Jesus? To confess your sin. Jesus, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you again and again and again and again. And I know that being on this earth, I will continue to sin. But with you as my Savior, I can sin less and I can sin less and I can obey you. Save me of my sins. Are you lost today in your sin? Are you not a Christian? If you're in this room today, Repent and follow Jesus, even right now, as you hear this, trust that Jesus came at the perfect time to save sinners. The fact that you feel so sinful, the fact that you feel so wretched, is a good thing that you bring to God. That attitude, that heart, that brokenness, bring your brokenness to God and be saved today. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make things better. Bring your absolute worst to Jesus and be made well. That's what we see. And what does that do for us as followers of Christ? That when we know that he came for us sinners, that he came to the lowest of low, all the way down to us. You're not deserving of it. I'm not deserving of it. That Christ the King would kneel. Kings don't kneel, but our King does. Let me say it this way. Our King did. So that one day you will kneel before him and confess that he is Lord. Do you believe this? Do you believe this?
children in the room, do you believe this? Jesus Christ is king. He is the one that you're looking for in this life to bring great fulfillment and joy. Right now, you may be involved in some sinful activity. And I hope that you're encouraged to know that Jesus came to die for sins like yours. And here's the joy that we can have. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What does Jesus Christ come to do? Make oaks of righteousness. Who plants these oaks of righteousness? God plants these oaks of righteousness. Why does God plant these oaks of righteousness? So that he may be glorified. His sovereign grace is revealed in this genealogy. And in your life, you can boast of his sovereign grace. And you can live a life of glorifying him every day. Every day. What is clear in the end is this, and here's where our confidence lies, is that this is the line of Joseph, not Mary. You can see that in the book of Luke. This is the line of Joseph. This is the line of Joseph that, to show us that Jesus is clearly not in the bloodline of David. He's not actual kin. No, he is unlike any other. He comes as a second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. First John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. So you may say, Brian, you're talking about calling upon Jesus, but you don't know the sin in my life. I don't, but God does. And the confidence that you have is that there was no sin in Jesus. That's the confidence that you have. If you feel embarrassed, if you feel unworthy, if you feel ashamed, if you feel rotten, these are all prerequisites to salvation. You bring this to the Lord and trust that there was no sin in Jesus. Today, be saved of your sins. Church, this is the beginning of us looking at God with us. And this is why he came, for his glory and is all by his sovereign grace. And we are here living in this time period 
for a specific purpose. And if you're struggling with something that you're going through, I hope that what you've heard today will bring you hope knowing that you continue to persevere. God is not lost. God is not panicked. God is not afraid. God is not stumbling for an answer. He has the answer. It is all here before us. And what a beautiful picture that we see Jesus clearly. In the Old Testament, it was like looking through uh, a dim glass. But yet we see the full picture of what Jesus came to do. What great confidence we can have by trusting in Jesus. Will you trust him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this genealogy. We thank you for the names that are here before us. And that you came to save people like that. People like us. Father, we do struggle with insecurities. We struggle with dark days in our lives of loss and mourning and pain and suffering. Forgive us, Lord, when we doubt you and we question you with sinful hearts. When we get angry with you because you are not catering to the life surrounding us. May we be encouraged today to know that Jesus is the center of history and that we are blessed to be a part of it. Once again, the reminder of your grace, which will save us of our sins, no matter what we've done. Father, thank you for the beautiful testimony of Corey Tim Boom that we can read today. A woman fueled by the Holy Spirit to forgive a man that had been forgiven by you. Work in our hearts, Lord. Soften our hearts towards those who do not know Jesus. Where we lack burden, God, burden our hearts. Where we lack tears, bring real tears for the lost. Where we lack the words, fill us through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak and to speak boldly. And where we lack the strength, strengthen us, Lord, to go. May we be unashamed of the gospel. We thank you that Christ is with us. We are a most undeserving people because Christ is most deserving. We can stand. We can stand in freedom. We can stand as those who are righteous in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.